welcome to the award-winning show, Holding Down the Fort, brought to you by U.S. Vet Wealth. A podcast show that focuses on sustaining a fulfilling, a purposeful military life through conversation and community building. I'm Jen Amos, a Gold Star daughter, veteran spouse, and creator of Holding Down the Fort. And I'm Jenny Lynn Stroop, a seasoned military spouse, mom of two boys, and your co-host. Together, we'll converse with special guests from the military community and for the community to share knowledge, resources, and relevant stories on how we can best hold down the fort for ourselves and our loved ones. Now let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the award-winning podcast show, Holding Down the Fort. I am your creator and co-host, Jen Amos. And as always, I have my amazing co-host with me, Jenny Lynn Stroop. Jenny Lynn, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. And this is a special episode today. Another bonus episode that we tend to release every now and then, especially when it comes to timely events. And so in this bonus episode, I am really excited to bring back my husband, who is the founder and CEO of US Vet Wealth, also my co-parent to our dog, <laughs> my husband, life partner, et cetera, et cetera, Scott Tucker. Scott, welcome back. Great to be back with you both. And so the reason why I called all three of us to have this conversation today is because we are going to be releasing this on the day of 9-11. And it dawned me earlier this week, as Jenny Lynn and I were kind of doing a day of interviews, that this year is the 20th, I don't know if we call it anniversary or the 20th year since 9-11 had occurred. And so, you know, my personal experience, and this is going to totally age me, but I was in middle school <laughs> when everything happened. And I was in middle school. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny Lynn. No, <laughs> Scott and I'll just sit over here in the old people section. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I was in middle school in the West Coast, never having been to the East Coast. And I just remember that at the time, it was just information to me. I was like, oh, Twin Towers got hit. At this time in middle school, I was getting bullied. You know, I wasn't paying attention to, you know, what's going on in the real world, other than my own problems of feeling bullied and dealing with feeling alone and still grieving the loss of my dad because it was still really fresh for me at that time. Now, fast forward to in the recent years, you know, I'm 33 now. When I was 30, 30, 31, when Scott and I moved to the East Coast, my first time out here, my sister happened to live in New York City and actually toured me around New York City. And it was the first time I saw the memorial for the Twin Tower buildings. And having already been with Scott for a number of years and to see the depth of that memorial and to see how deep the water fountain went and all the names that were listed on that memorial. It was actually the first time it deeply impacted me. And I actually cried just finally fully taking all that in. And so I opened up with that just to share my experience of 9-11 and how it took me so much later to really process. But, you know, going to you, Scott, you actually had a lot of experience around this, actually. You know, and so I want to have you share your story and what it was like at that time, you know, when 9-11 happened for you. So it was my senior at West Point. And back then, we didn't think there was ever going to be a war again. I mean, the biggest thing that everybody talked about was Bosnia and Kosovo and Black Hawk Down, you know, the Somalia Mogadishu incident. And we used to go to New York City all the time on the weekends, uh, you know, to party or whatever. And 
even three weeks before 9-11 was we have ring weekend at West Point where we get our rings. And it's a big event. And then everybody goes down to New York City and dresses up all nice. And we took a cruise down the river. And I got a photo with me with the Twin Towers behind me. And then that morning on a Tuesday, we actually we were the first class to get computers that actually had cable TV hooked up to it. So we all had TV in our rooms. And so as we're getting ready for class and stuff, it was, you know, I think it was like 8.30 in the morning when the first tower got hit. And, and so everybody's just, you know, watching a little bit, but, you know, we have to go on. Nobody thought anything of it. Just, you know, crazy incident, go on with our day and, you know, get to class. And I remember I was in my linguistics class in the language department. And that's when the second tower got hit, the, the Pentagon and you know, things started going off. So the, the teacher just turned on the TV, but in the linguistics department, the only channel they had was a French channel. So we, we watched the whole thing in French. I, I mean, I didn't understand. I don't speak French, but it was just very surreal just to kind of sit there and watch it. But then time was up. We had to go to the next class and my next class was physics. And the physics professor turned the TV on for like five minutes. And then he just turned it off and was like, well, if we don't learn, the terrorists win. So that was kind of a weird beginning to it. I don't really remember how the rest of the day went. I do remember we all had to get the New York Times every day. That's like a thing at West Point. You get the New York Times delivered to you and you're supposed to read it. And I kept that, actually got it laminated. I kept that front page of the New York Times and got it laminated. And then a couple of days later, we held a vigil. It's, a, it's kind of a solemn thing, like if a cadet dies at around 11 o'clock at night, we all get in full dress and go out to the plane, have a silent vigil. They play taps and stuff. And in the following days, I remember everybody kind of feeling like, hey, we should be going down there and, and, and helping somehow. And they wouldn't let us. We weren't allowed to leave. They locked down the campus for a number of weeks. And that was it. I mean, we, we all kind of knew, I mean, throughout the year that something was going on. Obviously, you know, we started going in Afghanistan, but it was at my graduation where President Bush made this speech, which is kind of known as the Bush Doctrine which was the idea of preemptively attacking you know, any country that posed a threat to terrorism. And I remember I turned to my buddy and I said, did he just say we're going to war with Iraq? Because, you know, that wasn't who attacked us. And so, you know, sure enough, obviously, we know what happened soon thereafter. But yeah, it was kind of an uncertain year. But I mean, at West Point, you're just so focused on graduating, getting the heck out of there that it didn't really start to hit until guys started getting to their first duty station and getting deployed. And then it was nonstop for almost 20 years. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I actually learned a little bit more about your story <laughs> and you getting to detail it in the classes that you were attending at that time. So thanks, Heidi. I learned more about you too <laughs> as well. And yeah, and I want to thank you for sharing that because in a lot of our talks, when we talk about the veteran community, we always say post 9-11 veterans. You know, it's like we now have a kind of a new like standard or a new time frame or timeline because of post 9-11. So Jenny Lynn, I want to turn it to you now. And, you know, if you can recall that day and even as you reflect on the last 20 years, I think, and even being an active duty military spouse. It's interesting in listening to Scott's story and his like proximity to New York City being at West Point and just kind of I mean, I, like you, realized this year was the 20th anniversary and was like, oh my gosh, it's been 20 years because I can still recall like all the things that happened that day and where I was every time like something major happened. I was also in college. I was a sophomore at Virginia Tech 
and I was getting ready to go to my first class that day. I was eating breakfast in the kitchen with my roommate who was from New York City, who grew up in Manhattan. And my other roommate who was from Syracuse, New York, yells down from upstairs, hey, turn on the TV. And we're like, we got to go. We have class. She's like, no, turn on the TV. So Jess and I go and turn on the TV and like start watching all of this unfold on the screen. She immediately is, you know, on the phone trying to contact her family who's in Manhattan. And, you know, also we both were like, well, we have class. Like, what do we do with what's happening here and this and that? And so we both went to class. I very much like Scott walked into class and the econ professor went, you can watch this at home or you can watch this here, but we're not having class today. You know, and I ended up choosing to go home and like be with my roommates, my friends, and just kind of sit in the uncertainty of all that was happening. Similarly to being in proximity to New York, you know, where I was in Southwest Virginia was a couple of hours from DC and a couple hours from Hampton Roads. And so, you know, with the giant Navy base and other military presence here in Hampton Roads, a lot of things happened where my family and friends were in that they closed the bridges and tunnels. And they, you know, if you were in Norfolk, you were staying in Norfolk. If you were on the other side, you were staying on the other side because they started closing things down in preparation for just the unknown. Similarly, in Southwest Virginia is the state arsenal. And so they locked our campus down and the other close college campuses because, again, nobody really knew what was next. And so it was just, I mean, I was 19. Yeah, I was 19. And, you know, it's one of those moments that, like, as it's happening, you know, it's going to be impactful. You just don't know how. Like, you just... I was 19. I was in college. Like I wanted to have fun with my friends and do fun things. And there's all of this unfolding on the television. And even though I'd been to New York, it still was a faraway place. It was the place of sex in the city, which was super popular when I was in college, you know, and it was this, just this iconic thing. And I just couldn't really wrap my mind around it. You know, fast forward a couple of years, I met Matthew in 2007 he was brand new in the Navy. We met at his first duty station here in Virginia Beach. And even though I'd grown up in Hampton Roads and I knew like on 9-11, people had really been activated and things were shut down. And by 2007, you know, yeah, we were in Iraq and in Afghanistan, but also he was Navy. And so it was a different feel. I mean, it was a different, we very much lived a civilian life aside from him putting on a uniform to go to work. Like we met when he was on shore duty and he worked shift work and I was a teacher and the impact of 9-11 didn't sit in my living room every day like it did later in our relationship. And then, you know, he did start deploying on regular, a regular Navy deployment and they were supporting both OEF and OIF. And then he was sent as an individual augmentee to Afghanistan. And that's when I stopped watching the news. That's when I stopped taking in 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 content about what was happening. At that point, we were 12 years in. There wasn't a ton of news. And if there was, it was always bad. And so I stopped. I stopped watching the news because the ramifications of something that had happened 12 years earlier sat in my living room 
every day. And it's not something that a Navy, there are not as many Navy folks who have had that experience of a ground deployment as obviously the other services who do ground deployments like the Army and the Marines. So it is odd to think about it now of like going from being this 19 year old kid in college, who was like, what is happening to being a 39 year old military spouse, having lived out the ramifications of all the things that happened that day. You said, you know, a couple of times, like, you know, it's strange that a Navy person was going over to Afghanistan, but that's when things started to get confusing for me. And I think a lot of other guys, as they decided to get out of the military after one or even more deployments is that the army was running out of people and, you know, they were sending national guard units over. They were creating these provincial reconstruction teams, PRTs, and they were just throwing anybody, air force, Navy, even coast guard, probably that wanted to sign up to deploy. Cause everybody knows if you deploy, you get extra money. And so some people would volunteer for that stuff, but Oftentimes they wouldn't, they would just get tasked like a certain unit, whether it's a reserve unit or an active duty unit would just get tasked. Hey, you got to send a couple people down. And so they just, who's next in line to go. And they would just send them down. And, and then when they started calling up people off the inactive ready reserve, the guys who had already gotten out. And one of my lacrosse teammates, uh, Brian Bunting, Bubba, he had gotten out of the army, had just had his first kid. And then he got called back up and he went and he got killed by an IED. And I, I don't even think I, I found, I mean, there was just, it's like, you know, people were just deploying so often, whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq. I mean, it all ties to that. I mean, the post 9-11 generation, I mean, what we called it was GWAT, Global War on Terror. And everything, all the money, all, all the orders, it was all based on this thing called GWAT. It had a special medal. Everybody got a special medal for being a part of GWAT, just simply being in the military. And you know, early on, it just became quite obvious that this wasn't the war or the army that we had trained for at West Point. Not at all. I mean, yeah, there was little instances of traditional warfare, but I mean, how many people in the Navy did anything related to what they were training for? I mean, besides sitting off the coast and maybe shooting off some cruise missiles and stuff. So, and, and, our, and our military's slow to adapt. And so it was just a number of years. And then what we're finding out, especially these last few weeks, is that sadly, there wasn't a, a whole lot of transparency to what was going on. And we just kind of kept doing the same thing over and over again in both places. And frankly, in a whole lot of other places as well. I mean, there's, you know, American soldiers have been killed everywhere from um, places in Africa to Syria. So for me, it just got confusing. And at some point, I remember for a while when I was in Germany, kind of going through my own, you know, post-military, figuring out my life. And I was just so far removed from everything. And I was then a civilian in Europe. And I had just disconnected for a number of years from what was even going on because it just seemed repetitive. And anyways, that, that's what I remember kind of feeling about, you know, all these people just constantly deployment. It just became a regular thing. When, when we first got to West Point, the whole idea is in the Army, you get this thing called a combat patch. And on your right shoulder, if you've been to combat, you get to wear the patch of the unit you served with in a combat zone. And so at West Point, like, Nobody had those, of course. Even the prior service guys, nobody had the combat patch. 
And then very soon, you started to learn about cadets that had the combat patch and quite frankly had, had been in some serious battles um, and then went off to West Point. And so I, I just can't even imagine the dynamic of not just going to the military academy, but joining the military at all after 9-11. Whereas my generation had signed up, you know, we were signing up for, but again, like I said, there nobody expected anything like what's happened. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, Scott. And I think my question now is, what does it mean for you today? You know, here we are 20 years later. But I'm curious for both of you, you know, because for myself, you know, being back in the community, you know, 20 years later after my dad had served, I'm really working with, you know, post 9-11 veterans and military families, you know. So for me, I kind of feel like I'm observing like the aftermath uh, or the impact of 9-11 more so than haven't been someone who lived through it, you know? So I'm, I'm curious to know what it means for you today. And in addition to that, does it influence the work that you do today? Yeah, I mean, it very much does in the sense that, well, I, didn't, I never went to Afghanistan. I was in Iraq in 2004 into 2005. But for me, what hit home was, you know, the, you started to hear about the 22 a day, the veteran suicide crisis. Like all of a sudden everybody cared about the veterans and we're going to do this differently than did for the soldiers coming back from Vietnam. And to some extent that's true. And yet I think I've heard the numbers are as high as 60,000 veterans have committed suicide. And in it's in a lot of it has to do with, you know, post-traumatic stress. It's not a disorder. I hate that term. And a lot of it has to do with that, but a lot of it has to do with what uh, Sebastian Junger talks about in his book, Tribe. It's like when you've been in this high op tempo world where the mission is the focus. I mean, Jenny Lynn could speak to it more, but I mean, family comes second. It's just part of being a, a soldier or a service member. And so to see so many people coming out and when they finally do get out of the military and they you know take a breath to figure out what they want to do and they don't know what to do. And then... There's this whole corporate world that is happy to gobble up, you know, a military person because it's, hey, let's be honest, it makes them look good to be hiring veterans, whether or not that particular veteran is the best fit. And I think some of these mental issues we've had coming out of the military from the, the hundreds of people I've talked to, if not thousands over the years, a lot of it has to do with that lack of sense of purpose. And, you know, for whatever reason, as much as people, it's like nobody likes going to war, like nobody likes going to these deployments, but it's what they knew and it's what they are trained for. And there is a, a camaraderie or even an exhilaration of it. I mean, 99% of the time over there is monotony and, and it sucks for a lot of people, but, um, you know, but, but there's, there's, there's memories of that that you can't get through anything else. And so it's understandable when when people feel very lost and you know it, it's not about politics is as much or the va you know there's there's always going to be complaining but it's like you know what do we expect it's like you know they sent us off to war for year after year after year and you know, the mission of the military isn't to make sure you know everybody's okay i mean they try i mean they've put a lot of money and effort into it but it's you know it's a big bureaucracy. Like they try to do a one size all fits solution. It's just too big of a problem. And it's just gotten bigger every year that it's gone on. 
And unfortunately, that's just going to, just like what happened with the Vietnam veterans, this is going to be our generation going forward. It's not going to stop because we haven't even, we haven't even begun to understand the health issues coming from things like the burn pits. I mean, my unit in Iraq, we were living right next to the burn pit for a year. And my soldiers had to guard guard the wall on the towers, I mean, right next to it, literally breathing it in every single day. And so those types of other effects will only, you know, begin to start showing up as people start to get old and their health deteriorates. Does it impact the work I do? And it's like, very much so that became my calling in the sense that I, you know, I didn't go through a traumatic experience downrange. Um, but I was still felt lost. And as I went through this crazy journey of, you know, trying to figure out myself, I realized, oh, there's a system here. And, you know, maybe there's other veterans who are being kind of forced through the transition, you know, program that everybody goes to funnel them through to those jobs. It's good. Hey, get veterans jobs. But again, if it's if it's not the right one, you know, if it's all about that paycheck, maybe we're thinking about it wrong. So that became very important to me to, you know, offer some other thoughts and ways to maybe address that to find again, you know, purpose for a paycheck, if that's what it's all about. Yeah, I think just from what I'm hearing, um, and you were referring to Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe, it's like, these service members are in this high tempo environment, like you said, and then when they transition out, you know, they really struggle with this lack of purpose. And I saw that for you, you know, firsthand, Scott, especially when we started dating, and when, and we started working together, and just kind of your constant, you know, your constant drive to explore new ideas, which like, which honestly drove me nuts for a certain amount of time. But in a way, I'm grateful that I caught you at the time that you did, because it's really cool to see where we are now, you know, a handful of years later to see how much we're honing in, even in the work that we do together. And so I just, you know, I appreciate like your past and how it influences where you're at today in regards to, you know, at least when we talk about money with US Vet Wealth, it's not just about, you know, saving for retirement. It's how do you live purposely in post-military life and how can your finances support you on that? And and that's a whole conversation that that's an uphill conversation that we are proud, you know, to be a part of, to be a part of that dialogue and try to come up with that language to not just assist our service members, but even the spouses who often, you know, are overlooked in these types of uh, process or, or in this type of situation. And, you know, Jenny Lynn and I definitely talk about it <laughs> quite often and even in the interviews we had today. So I just want to thank you for, you know, sharing that and how that kind of influences how your past in a sense influences the work that you do today. So Jenny Lane, I want to turn it over to you and first and foremost, ask if you have any thoughts based off of what Scott has shared, and then we'll get into like, how does this, like, how do you feel about 9-11 today and how does it influence, you know, the work that you do today, if it does at all? Yeah. So, I mean, I want to pick up on the same point you did, Sebastian Younger and the book Tribe. Honestly, that book nails it as far as like why Tribe is important, how it helps people survive, and how the lack of that is really kind of the post 9-11 mil vet crisis, right? Like if you're really going to boil it down to that, it's that 0.5% of the United States population serves in the military in this day and age. That's not a lot of people. And sometimes as someone who is living within that realm it's hard to remember that we're so small because I'm always surrounded by people like me. 
But the truth is, is that I'm always surrounded by people like me because I'm stationed in areas where 15,000 other people are also stationed that are just like me. But when you go out, you know, to other states that don't have military bases, you realize like we're really an anomaly. (laughs) And that when people returning home from post 9-11 service, I mean, a lot of them are going back home to their hometown where they are the sole post 9-11 service member. And so I think to everyone's point, like that community is such a big part of how I think we as a post 9-11 population like heal from a 20 year conflict, you know, and also like educate about a 20 year conflict. I think it's going to take the weight and the lift of the community to do that. You know, as far as 9-11 affecting what I do today, I mean, (laughs) the actual mission statement of Cohen Veterans Network is that we serve post 9-11 era service members, veterans and their families, high quality mental health. These are my people (laughs) and this is the work that I do. And these are my people because I am part of that community. And also like, honestly, I just, at this point in my life could not imagine doing anything else because my own mental health and my family's mental health has been so impacted by the, you know, 13th and 14th order of ramifications from 9-11. Like we're a post 9-11 military family. And so there's no getting around the impact that that has had on my adult life and my children's whole lives. You know, and interestingly enough, as I was listening to both of you talk, I realized like, oh, there's so much more to this to unravel for me that I'm probably just talking through out loud on the microphone. But our duty station 25 days after Matthew returned from Afghanistan was New York City. So we moved, he came home July 1st of 2013 and July 25th, we moved to New York City. Actually, we moved to just outside New York City, but he was stationed in Manhattan. And so, gosh, you know, there was hardly anything there that didn't touch 9-11 in some way, shape or form from the events that we attended to the things that we did to the people we met. You know, they were still building Freedom Tower when we were there. And so like our family name is actually written on one of the post beams because Matthew was able to go up in the tower, you know, when it was still a hard hat area, you know, and the people we met and the stories we heard, like, I realized how deeply that has settled within me as an adult. Like there's just no getting around being there and living around like the monuments and the stories and especially being a military family, like, cause that's what we did. We did military things, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, well, While 9-11 is not something I think about every day, it definitely has, I mean, (laughs) is the reason I do what I do as a 39-year-old adult in the mental health field. And also, you know, has impacted just decisions we've made as a family and different things we've done. And I really think, especially as things have wound down in Afghanistan in the last couple of weeks and bringing it back to the tribe thing, like a very small percentage of the population has carried the weight of 20 years. And it is my hope 
that even though I work directly for and with post 9-11 era service members and their families, you know, through this podcast and through just my general being out in the world is that we start to lift some of the weight off of the 0.5% because I know, I mean, I said earlier in this podcast, as a Navy family, it's easy to forget sometimes that we've been at war for 20 years because it doesn't look the same as a Marine family or an Army family. But the truth is we have. And there are not very many of us that have that as a constant reminder. And I think that as a community, what would help immensely within the community is people from outside of that 0.5% helping to lift the burden of what 20 years of war looks like for an entire generation. So that's a process. Well, I just want to say thank you both for having this conversation today. I think what it sounds to me is what we're encouraging our listeners to do and our civilian counterparts is to not necessarily just start and end the conversation by saying, thank you for your service, or we remember, you know, but to be like, tell me your story, tell me your experience. You know, that's part of why I wanted all of us to come together today. I think for me, it was just about honoring us and honoring our journey in this military life and how we all kind of come from different walks of life, essentially. And yet here we are with that common thread of the military community to just take this time to honor this whole generation of people who've experienced 9-11, hence this whole generation being called post-9-11 veterans. That's a great point. I just want to hit on a little bit because one of the struggles, and it's almost become a meme of the whole, like, you know, thank you for your service. And then we all don't know how to respond. And we say, well, thank you. Or, you know, it, it just becomes this awkward situation when I've always thought, well, that, that seems like an end to a conversation. I know they mean it well, but, you know, I think a better question would be, ask me about my service. Because the one thing about this whole military transition thing that I've realized is there hasn't been a good translation of, you know, to the civilian world and then vice versa. Um, and so there's the support, but it's just still this awkward divide that either doesn't just get talked about. I mean, I think about my civilian friends and it, you know, and rarely comes up and that's nice in a way, but yeah, I think you make a great point that somehow we got to lean on the rest of the American population to embrace what's happened. Yeah. Well, and at some point we all were one team, one fight. Like, what was it, you know, the day after 9-11? I I don't know that you could buy an American flag anywhere because everybody had one. And it was just the longer it went on, the more it fell to the few. And I think to truly like repair some of the discourse and stuff, it really is going to take a very large community American effort, you know, to eradicate some of the more egregious things that have come out of 20 years of war. <laughs> One point that came to mind as we kept on talking about, you know, the post 9-11 generation, because one of the main things that came out of all this in the form of a benefit is the post 9-11 GI Bill. And that was a means to allow service members that were coming back and maybe they only, had only done you know, one or two enlistments and gotten out well before their the 20 year for retirement uh, so they could go to school. And unfortunately, what I've seen happen is that's backfired in, in a lot of ways. Uh, I think a lot of people got great educations off of it. They've been doing great. But there's a lot of people who just used that bill or that benefit 
as, in a sense, a new duty station. Just, okay, well, I'm just going to go to school because then you get you get a housing allowance. And that's the whole thing. I know so many veterans. I mean, one of our podcasting friends, you know, lived in Florida, but went to school in San Francisco because the housing allowance was higher and didn't really care about the school. So, and, and frankly, a lot of these veteran-friendly colleges or universities popped up knowing that they were going to get the paycheck from the bill to pay for it. So it's something I want to caution people on, you know, be more intentional with a benefit such as that, because it can be great. It would be a way for pay your kids college. It would be a great way to help a military a spouse because you can transfer those benefits. It's just for the veteran themselves that have used it without clarity and intention, then they just end up in the same spot a couple of years later. I remember I was at a, a networking event in San Diego and I ran into another West Point grad and he had just finished getting his master's degree at San Diego State. And he was going to a career fair for military there in San Diego the next day. And so I said to him, oh, cool. Well, who are you looking to talk to? What are you looking to do? And he's like, I don't know. And I was flabbergasted. I was like, wait a minute, you went, spent two years getting a master's degree and you're just going to show up. You don't have, I mean, there was nothing other than, ah, I'm a West Pointer with a, with a grad degree. I'll be good. And, and so I just think that that's, that's risky when we talk about, you know, that finding purpose and meaning thing later on. Yeah. Well, thank you for that suggestion and word of caution. And yeah, I think really today it was just about, you know, bring awareness and just kind of reflecting on these last 20 years, but more so to just, you know, have a time for us three to talk about this time and to not just remember 9-11, but to take a moment to ask people who have served their story and their experiences, just like what we did in this conversation today. So once again, thank you, Jenny Lynn, for co-hosting with me. And also, Scott, thank you for joining us again here on the Holding Down the Fort podcast and sharing your perspective. I felt like it was really important. Um, I know that um, sometimes you would prefer not to address this time of the year, but considering that it's 20 years now, I just wanted to thank you for you know coming on and sharing your story and your experience. And um, I hope that this will give our listeners an opportunity to reflect on the last 20 years and how it can or has impacted the work that they do today or how they live their lives today. All right. We honor these last 20 years and all the sacrifices that have been made. And we thank you all for listening. Tune in next time. We hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. Get access to our show notes and subscribe to our newsletter by checking out the details of this episode on your preferred podcasting platform or visit our website, holdingdownthefortpodcast.com. And while you're on holdingdownthefortpodcast.com, be sure to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or our YouTube channel. If you got a lot of value from today's conversation, kindly leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or leave us a recommendation on our LinkedIn profiles. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time. Oh, 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 oh